Hello and welcome to Yamaha Music's podcast, Artist Insights. My name is Phoebe Ely and I'm going to be taking you behind the scenes to give you an exclusive insight into the lives and journeys of some of Yamaha's leading artists. Today, I am joined by one of the most exceptional jazz musicians in the world. Having played with the likes of Jeff Lorber, Jimmy Haslip, Lionel Cordu and Gary Novak, professional saxophonist Hakan Alanson has not only played and toured all over the world as an international artist, he also balances a professional career as an extreme endurance athlete alongside it. In recent years, Hakan has managed to combine both careers together to create an incredibly unique musical experience and journey for both himself and his audiences. As a world record holder for both the highest concert on earth and the coldest concert on earth, Hakan's story is both fascinating and awe-inspiring, and I feel incredibly privileged to have some time to speak with him today. Hakan, thank you so much for being here. It's so amazing to have you on Artist Insights. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Hi, oh, so welcome. Now, starting off, you began learning the saxophone age nine, am I right? Yeah, that's correct. And how did that unfold? And what was it like the, the first moment you saw a saxophone? What drew you to that instrument in particular? Well, actually, we had like a, like a presentation on school for the, the local marching band. And, and the, the conductor, he was a saxophonist. So he, he started off playing the flutes, the, the trombones, blah, 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 etc. And then he went on to play the saxophone and he was really good. So, and he played like a small, small, short piece from the Blues Brothers. And I was just like completely hooked. I was like, man, I need to learn that. That was so awesome. Amazing. And what were your earliest memories of live musical performance? Do you remember how you felt at your very first concert? Really, really nervous. I mean, one thing is playing with a marching band, being a part of a bigger group. That's that's fine. It's always fine. However, playing alone, doing your first solo gigs, that's when you really feel the pressure. Yeah, I can imagine. And how old were you then? Were you around 12 or 13? Well, I think I had my first paid gig as a 13 or 14 year old, just like a super wow. local thing for like 50 quids. But anyways, it was it was a thing and the nerves were all up there. <laughs> well, hi. Oh, wow. Amazing that you got hired at that age. So you're obviously an incredible talent from an early age. And initially you went down a fairly standard musical career journey in terms of going to a music conservatory, gaining your qualifications and then this unique, incredible pathway that you now find yourself on opened up. And I'm wondering if you could just explain to us how that unfolded and what were the key moments at that point in your life that steered you towards this really incredible journey? The thing is that it all kind of started off with, as you said, doing the more traditional uh, routine on becoming a professional musician. I did musical college, moved on to the university. I did the conservatory for for uh, many years so i now hold a seven-year uh, master's degree in playing saxophone which is of course wow. yeah it's awesome but uh, it all kind of started straight in the middle of my stay at the university because i i really figured out at one point if i were to be a professional musician i really had to get my shit together and like practice a lot and just do everything to to kind of get all that as good as possible so I practice day in and day out, and uh, I mean, as we all know, practice makes perfect. So, yeah. <laughs> and so alongside that, I got 
very cool opportunities to to play with big musicians, tour uh, around in Norway and then in Europe and and in Russia and kind of doing cool things. And the better I got, the better people I got to play with, and the better the backstage were, the bigger the stage. I mean, it all just like escalated. Um, seriously, coming from northern Norway, we we have a culture including alcohol that is kind of more free <laughs> so <laughs> i mean I, I wouldn't say that it turned into a problem but i i did see the limits of actually going to work and and having all these temptations around so i kind of figured out that i need to set myself some sort of sports goal uh mm. or, or some goal besides music uh f- yeah. focusing on the physical that i i couldn't kind of live the free lifestyle i think many jazz musicians have kind of fallen into because that rabbit hole is very, very deep. So I just I just Googled what's the world's hardest competition. And I started. I went along. I did that. Uh, I just kind of in, enrolled. I didn't know how to run properly. I didn't own a bike. I didn't know how to swim. So that was, that was kind of the start. And I, I started to do extreme endurance sports just kind of to push myself out of the, the, the stereotypical pattern. Yeah, and then obviously that then basically drove you to amalgamate the two careers together. And I know we spoke briefly before the podcast about a really prolific tourist cabin that you first sort of realized that's where you wanted to amalgamate the two. Can you talk us through that day and how it came about and what was it like to connect with the audience in such a intimate way? Uh, like doing that, I, I put myself in a position that kind of, took me off just the main grid of being a stereotypical saxophone player. And that kind of opened doors I did not know existed. So uh, at one point there was a woman, she had a festival at the coast of Norway and she she really, uh, she wanted to do a spectacular gig uh, playing, uh, uh, well, hosting a concert at uh, the most peripheral uh, like tourist cabin in Norway. So it's like a six yeah. hour walk. You have to hike up 1,073 altitude meters to get there. And so the place is spectacular, but she couldn't find musicians that were physically fit enough to do that yeah. until she she heard of me then. So so <laughs> she kind of called me and, hey man, I, I, I want to host a concert there, but I do have a problem. Like I couldn't find musicians. And I was like, well, you just hit the right guy. So I did that all in. I packed my, my, my backpack with my saxophone, of course, a tenor, tenor saxophone. I had speakers. I had a generator, 50 meters of cables, and like wow. a total weight of 75 kilos walking up there. So I busted the shit out of me to, to kind of get there. However, though, the, the experience was just, it was so mesmerizing. The, the, like playing with, uh, like a backdrop of the Norwegian spectacular nature was absolutely stunning. And I mean, also playing to to the audience up there. People were tired. They have been walking for a long time. They had like these so many, so many impressions right there. So I got a really, really unique uh, kind of con- uh, connection with the audience. And that was really... Because they hiked yeah. with you, didn't they? They went all the way up with you. Absolutely. And we kind of just really... I mean, p- musicians talk about we feed on the, the energy of the audience and everything. But this was at s- the next level, a new dimension and kind of connection with the audience. So I, it, it really it really just kind of 
fired up the whole I want to play in nature thing that I'm doing now. Yeah. What a fantastic story. And like you said, such a different type of connection when you've been through that kind of journey and you share that experience. It must have been absolutely exhilarating. And I'm wondering, obviously, like you said, you had to be physically fit to be able to even manage that hike with such a heavy load on your back. And being an extreme endurance athlete requires a huge amount of dedication, commitment and intense training. How do you train for the extreme conditions, both physically and mentally? The thing is that if you ask me, I think doing music and extreme endurance uh, contests, they, they fit perfectly. Uh, because they're, they're such, uh, both are such mentally and physically demanding, both, I mean, staying upright uh, in a practice room for 10, 12, 14 hours a day, I mean, it's it's hard. And it's so, it's physically hard and it's mentally hard. But for me, when I got into that perfect routine at the university, I, I, uh, I woke up in the morning at five, I went to swim for a couple of hours, and then I went to, to the university, I practiced all day, and then at the evening, I went to do another session, training session, and then back to the university and train, home and sleep, and then repeat. And I mean, th the one thing just perfectly kind of disconnected the other. So when I went to, to train, my, my musical thoughts just like, well, I, I didn't think at all. That was a good thing. I mean, when you stand up in a, in a practice room doing Coltrane changes for how many hours? I mean, that really kind of drains your energy. energy. So mm. it was so cool to, to kind of doing that contrast. And it just fired up because, I mean, being a professional musician, you have to train for so many thousand hours. And also doing that, and also doing sports professionally, you really need to train for at least maybe eight hundred and or a thousand hours each year. So it's demanding. Very demanding. And I'm wondering, do you have to musically train any differently in terms of your technique in order to be able to play right at the top of those highest, highest points? Do you have to change anything to be able to play in those conditions? <laughs> Uh, I actually uh, like before I went to Everest. I needed to uh, I needed to kind of test my saxophone. That like is it able to play in minus thirty uh, degrees? Because it's it's metal, so like the temperature drains from the metal even faster than from anything else. So it gets freakishly cold. So I went <laughs> to like a a big ass freezer that was. 28 minus degrees <laughs> i put my saxophone in there for 24 hours and i kind of did wow. a training session so i i i ran to the to the big um to the big freezer i picked up the saxophone and tried to play when it was minus 28 and it kind of worked it kind of worked uh but i could feel some some weak spots and that was the point i actually talked to yamaha and like okay hey guys we need to make uh some adjustments to a saxophone because it's not ready to play at everest yet so so that's kind of started the dialogue how to prepare for for all these summits because i mean of course it's physically and mentally so draining to get up there so draining. So you could imagine being awake for 40 hours uh you got 30 percent oxygen uh, available and then you want to play a concert in minus 29 it, it i it's not the best conditions i can't even <laughs> begin to imagine it blows my mind your strength just like i said stamina wise mentally physically it just has to be an absolute peak doesn't it it's incredible and such a unique way to try and train to get in those freezers to kind of give yourself some sort of sense but even that is nowhere near what you were going to face on the actual day i imagine so 
thinking about this, you've endured this hike, you're finally 7,000 meters above sea level. It's the highest altitude concert ever staged on land. Your muscles are aching, your vision is blurry. How do you build up both the mental and physical strength at that point in time to play a concert? And what is going through your mind when you stood at the very top there? I think I I actually, I thought about all the risk involved. Uh, I've thought about uh, everything that is on stake. And I think yeah. uh, also like musicians can relate to this when you get on stage, you think of how many hours you put into this, how many, uh, I mean, social settings you have to kind of not be able to go to, how much you really, really like put into to doing that one little thing. And I, I don't think you can prepare enough for that. But when you get to that certain point, you really, you really, you kind of feel the seriousness of it all. And the 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 body just mobilizes and and it gets ready to do something that is so hard to do but i mean the energy is pumping adrenaline is pumping maybe you got some frostbites but the the mind don't care about that so <laughs> i mean it's just it, it cannot be explained i can imagine it feels quite ethereal and just completely different experience and i'm wondering what what is the main difference you feel between playing at that height compared to a normal sort of gig environment what does it give to you that playing in a normal jazz venue can't it gives me inspiration uh it gives me another perspective another another angle some unique insight into how i can create art when i get down again and when i then go on stage i truly believe that i have another history to perform on stage i got different experience than most musicians when i come on stage i got different angles to how to approach music especially improvisation which is my uh, special field and i think that uh, that kind of enriches me to 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 be to become a better musician for myself because that's my goal i don't want to like outplay anyone i don't do that sports jazz thing but i do think that people should really chase their own stories their own inspiration and I'm just doing that. I love that. I really love that. And you've been quoted saying that the saxophone is an extension of my body. It's the key that enables me to fully express myself. And when I read that, I just thought, gosh, so poignant, such a poignant statement. And I'm wondering if you can explain how that feels with the added impact of being thousands of meters above sea level. What does it give to your soul? Well, the thing is that I would really like to be good at singing. That would be so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean but my voice don't is not suited for that so i oh, i don't believe you well, well <laughs> yeah, i'm not good enough though so the thing is that, that i just i put so many hours into practicing the saxophone that uh, i really kind of chased that goal of becoming uh 100 percent uh technical uh like that i had the profit of just doing everything I wanted on the saxophone. That was my goal going into and also out from the university. So I just use my body to, to kind of sing my voice. That is my goal. And I've been focusing on not to have any obstacles on the saxophone. I just want to perform mm-hmm. anything that is in my head. That is my ultimate goal. And then, as I said, I really feel that the, the saxophone is just an extension of my body, which is basically just my voice since my original singing voice is just it's it's it, it's limits is backup vocals at best <laughs> <laughs> oh honestly that's incredible and 
you've mentioned obstacles and you've quite literally reached incredible heights in your career as both musician and athlete combined. And I'm wondering what has been the biggest obstacle you have faced to get to the point that you're at today? I think many, many musicians uh, stumble across the same obstacles. I think kind of uh, sitting alone, finding that one dream that you you really want to chase when you kind of find that one calling that you feel you're put on this earth uh, to do. I feel that is really hard to kind of convey to other people to explain how big you actually think. And I I, I think that one of my biggest obstacles is to meet people that could be depressing for for my inspiration Uh, because I think that people, uh, uh, especially non-cultural people, people that are not interested in 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 arts or music like i mean in general i think they just don't grasp upon how large you can actually think and mm. that is so depressing meeting people that are not able to think big enough because it's just a limitation they met some obstacles mm. in their life that kind of sets the limit of just thinking as far as their own nose tip and and it's so they, they can be really hurtful uh, so for me to to kind of play concerts up in high altitudes has been a more a symbolic thing than than I want to play a beautiful saxophone concert at I mean at the top of the world because of course it sounds horrible I mean the conditions are super bad so it's horrible yeah. <laughs> but it's it's a more symbolic thing I'm doing and I think it's kind of connecting the the mountains are really uh, so, some sort of a strong visual uh, example of of goals and I just I'm proud of being able to been up there and kind of contradict all the the negativity out there because I think we should not limit each other to think big I think that is the way we should evolve I fully agree and I just think it's incredible what you're doing and how you've managed to get to this point that you're at today and when it comes to the future Hakan yours seems clearer than most right now as you're planning to climb and document all seven summits and perform a concert at the top of each one. Now, for those listeners that may not know, there are only around a thousand people who have completed the seven summits challenge and many lives have been lost whilst attempting it, all of which did not have this added pressure of performing a concert right at the top of them. So what was your drive behind this challenge and what do you hope to achieve artistically and as a person right at the end of it? Yeah, uh, the thing is that I'm not doing this to show off how physically fit I am or to doing uh, beautiful concerts up there for the few people there. That's not my point. I, I have a larger artistic approach to, to, my, to my end goal. And that is basically my concept is that I climb these seven summits and uh, on the way up, I compose music inspired by the people I meet and the cultures I stumble across and also the, the, the nature I, I walk in. And that is the fund, uh, like the foundation of uh, of the musical inspiration that I, when I get back to Norway, I sit down, as I'm doing now, and sitting here in Norway composing uh, uh, a symphony of the journeys wow. I've been to for a 70-piece orchestra. So my end goal is to perform uh, a world tour with the music I, I've composed on these journeys when I've mm-hmm. done kind of, uh, you know, working with the material in some sort of a multimedia show where I play with I play live with a 70 piece orchestra I have a tailored made video in the background and I also tell the story 
of why the why the music is sounding like it does, where the inspirations come from, what kind of obstacle I physically been through uh, towards the the summits, and also kind of like just basically the the backstory of the whole concept. And my end goal is actually to put uh, to put culture uh, and like music and arts in general on the map for the whole global community. Because I mean, especially mm-hmm. now culture is being so suppressed in this uh, COVID-19 times. I mean, we, we don't get taken seriously. People don't see the value of culture. Uh, they just uh, think that people are funded by governments or foundations all over the world. They don't, they don't make money, but it's such an important business because at the end, I mean, when people are done from whatever they do for a profession, the, the, the clock hits five, what are you supposed to do? That's where culture come uh, come into the picture, and I mean, culture is basically what it, what we do to live, not to make money, but how we how we make our lives. Absolutely, and I've seen snippets of your some of your journeys recently, where you are just absolutely alive and connecting with so many different communities along the way. And I know that's a really important part of the journey that you want to showcase. And I'm wondering, how did people in the communities that you went to respond to your playing? Yeah, so so for example, when I I I went to uh, I went to climb Kilimanjaro and play saxophone at the summit. I I also have a, a big focus on kind of tracking down uh, peripheral uh, kind of tribes and finding cultural that is really like historically correct to the continent I I travel to. So. I, I tracked down uh, <laughs> a tribe called the Hadzabi tribe, and wow. it's a it's a bush people. They they live, I don't know. We 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 had to drive for like four or five days to get to to their kind of to their site, and they don't have any clothes. They 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 only wear like uh, like monkeys skins and and such, and they had this really weird language so the the tribe king he came up to me and he's like nun, nun, nun. and i'm like what yeah what what what's happening and he's like nun, nun, nun. and he kind of pointed at me and i'm like oh uh, that's his name okay cool well uh, my name is hokum vilam skogaransen pleasure to meet you blah 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 so the whole point was that we could not talk uh, to each other with like language so yeah. we sat down around a bonfire and i could just feel the tension of the whole tribe but however i saw like their their uh, like a music instrument like a string instrument and i was like can i try that and i started playing it sounded horrible but i kind of found the rhythm and and some sort of notes and then the tribe leader he started to sing along wow. like like that and suddenly i was kind of accepted to the to um, everybody started smiling and i was accepted to the tribe so i mean Traveling around the world with music as a main language for communication is the whole point. I mean, people have not seen that, and it's so amazing because that is the one and only true international language. It's so powerful, isn't it? And the fact that there's just no, there's a language barrier, it's not there because you can connect in that way is just so moving and so powerful. And Hakon, you have been the most fascinating and talented person I have ever met and I just definitely don't want this chat to end but I have come to my final question which is what piece of advice would you give to an 18 year old Hakon? Never stop dreaming like literally never stop dreaming and never stop being a kid 
that is like my my best advice. I would give that to myself. I would start even earlier on doing extreme sports, skydiving, cave diving, whatever, at an earlier age if I knew how awesome it was. And I like the life I'm living right now is just exactly the way I want it to be. I want to play music. Well, I can't do that right now, but very soon. But I want to play music. I want to do extreme sport and just feel inspired. Keep on dreaming, feel inspired and Never forget that structure, structure and discipline is like the only way to success. So um, yeah, keep on doing that and I think you'll succeed. I love that. Thank you so much for joining me today on Artist Insights. You have been an absolute joy. My pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode and want to learn more about Yamaha and our artists, please do tell your friends about the show and subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We'll see you next time for another episode of Artist Insights with Yamaha.